You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, it feels good to be back up this week. It was uh, nice to have a couple of weeks to just be able to sit with you and and worship alongside you, but it does feel good. And so I want to kind of let you know what we're going to be doing for August. Uh, It's going to kind of be its own month, and everything is going to focus on one word, and that word is pursue. Now, it's a very interesting word. It is a word that we're actually doing all of the time, and it is extremely powerful. It could be things like this, that the pursuit of animals, we call that hunting. You pursue education, and I know it's starting soon. Half of us are excited, half are not. But school is the pursuit of education. We pursue money and success, a way to provide for our families, and you know that pursuit is a job. We pursue happiness. Hopefully you were able to take some time this summer, whether a vacation or a staycation, Maybe simply taking your kids to the park. We pursue, we set up our lives to pursue happiness. We pursue relaxation. Yours might be finding a book to sit quietly down and read or enjoying a cup of coffee on your porch or something like that. But you're pursuing relaxation. We pursue escape. You go to the movies or you... Turn on Netflix, and we've often said Netflix won't watch itself. You know, we pursue escape, relationships. It's a pursuit of connecting to someone. We have that desire in us, intimacy and love. And so my bride of, wow, 24 years now, when I was in high school, we were, I was so afraid of messing this thing up. And uh, so this was before cell phones. So I would come home and I had a notebook that I had to keep hidden from my siblings. And in this notebook, I would not call until I had 25 questions. That way I was so nervous about dead space. I heard thinking I was stupid. So I had this notebook and until I I couldn't call until I had 25 questions. And it was really a great day when I didn't get through all the 25 the day before and I didn't have as many to do the next day. But, you know, we're pursuing other people and sometimes we're just really afraid of messing it up. So for this month of August, we're going to talk about this word pursue. And here's how the weeks will go. Today... We're going to talk about God's pursuit of us, how He pursues us. August 12th, we're going to talk about pursuing our identity, where we find that how do we pursue that. Next week, we'll talk about pursuing others. And then last, we'll be pursuing our purpose, our our calling. So this morning, I want to invite you to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2 is where we will begin. But as you're turning there, I want to ask you an important question about your life. The question would be phrased something like this, is what would bring you right now where you sit, what you're going through, what would bring you greater joy or happiness in your life? Or if you had to fill in the blank that this right here, this would make my life better. Some of you might say, man, if I just had a better job, 
Man, if I had a job that I went to and I enjoyed, I loved what I did, if I, if I could have a better job, I'd be so much happier. My life would be better. Some might just wish for your children to obey. You've tried everything you can. You've read every book. Everybody else seems to have it together. But, man, if my children, if they could just obey, think the house would be so much better and everything would be better in my life. Some might say, if I just had a bigger house, we're cramped and, man, we just need more room. Man, if we had a better house, a bigger house, my life would be so much better. I remember being in this stage, kind of am now. Man, if I just had a car that I knew would start. Man, if I had reliable transportation, Life would be so much better. Some might even say, if I could go back to school, something I've always wanted to do. Some might be saying, if I could just get out of school, life would be better. More money. Man, you know what? We live that, and it never seems to be enough. Things break. Water heaters go out. Air conditioners don't seem to work. I am thankful we now have another working air conditioner. But if I just had more money, man, my life would be so much better. Some of us might say, man, I'm tired of being single. And I just want somebody to share life with. Or some might say, if my, my marriage was just healthier, if we could just communicate, man, my life, man, it would be so much better, so worth living. So what does your life need to make it better? So I want us to think about that question as we walk through Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 5. This is what's hard about kind of picking a book, and typically we will walk through an entire book, but just kind of dropping in. But Hebrews is one of these books, it's very interesting, that we don't know who wrote it, and we really don't even know the audience or who it was written to. But the purpose of the book could not be clear. The purpose is all about to encourage Christians, believers, in a time of trial. You can see that through the book of Hebrews. They're going through difficult times and how to encourage them. The author wants to do that. But the answer is, he tells us, is that the only hope for making it through a trial is to focus on the total supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament, better than the old covenants, that Jesus is better. And when you focus on him, that he's your hope. And that really is the theme. That's the overarching idea of Hebrews. And so let's begin in verse 5 of chapter 2. It begins this way. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. And so there's a question that has just been asked that is now being answered. And the question is, why are there struggles and why are there trials in the world? For Christians, why, why do we go through these difficult times? And it's a question that we have all asked. We've all said, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to follow Jesus, I'm trying to do this thing, so why do these things keep happening? And so what the author does, he takes us all the way back to creation. That The author is going to describe God's original design for life. God designed this perfect place with perfect people and with a perfect design. And this design of this world that God created was to be rightly ruled and cared for, but not by angels. Look at who it is in verse 6. God had a plan. He had a system in place, a design. And it says, it has been testified somewhere, or it says in some place, 
What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and putting everything, subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what the author is doing is quoting what we read in our call to worship. He's quoting Psalm 8. So I want to read that once again and notice who God put in his design to rule over the earth. It says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him humanity a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion over the works of your hand, and you have put all things in under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also beasts of the fields and birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So God's design was that humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, would rightly rule over the land and his creatures. The humanity was to appreciate and care for the animals. They were to respect and use the land like God intended. And with each other, they were to seek peace, to love your neighbor. But look at verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 2. The sad truth it says, but we do not see this now, because look at our world. We don't appreciate the animals. We misuse the land that God gives us. We see the value of life decreasing. I mean, people will steal from others because they want what others have. We hear of murders over just a few dollars or someone cut someone off in traffic. We'll tear someone down or destroy their reputation if it helps us. So because of sin, we don't see God's original design being lived out. He says, we don't see that now. So what we see is this picture of sin affecting everything about us. And in fact, the things that we will look at over this next week, that sin affects every bit of that. It corrupts our relationship with our Creator. Sin even affects the relationship with yourself. We see it all the time in the relationship with each other. We say it all the time, you stay around here long enough, somebody's going to hurt your feelings. We just know that's going to happen. We tear people down. It corrupts our ability to live out God's desire for our own individual lives. So God has a choice. God can leave us in our sin that corrupts everything about us, or God could step in. And God steps in in the biggest way. So in verse 9, this is the first thing about God pursuing us, that God pursues us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. But we see him for a little while. 
as he was made lower than the angels named Jesus. And notice the author is now reinterpreting Psalm 8. Named Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So God the Father sent his Son to do what we couldn't do, to appreciate creation, to care for the land as we should, to treat each other with respect and love. That God sent Jesus to do what we could not do, that we see God pursuing us by sending a substitute. He sent His Son, and He crowns Him with glory and honor to redeem and to save us. And so God pursues us through a substitute. He pursues us by sending someone that could live the life that God intended for us to do, but then we never could. God pursues us to the extent, and notice in these verses, at the extent of His own Son's life. God knew that the plan to save us would only work if one thing happened. His son would have to come and live and suffer in your place. That's the only way that this plan was going to work. That God knew the only solution was that his son would have to come and live the life that we never could and taste death for us. That's the extent that God was willing to go through to pursue you. He said, at all cost, it will be worth it. But there's more. So not only does God pursue us to the extent of his own very son's life, it's for a very specific reason. And it's in verse 10. And it's God pursues you to make you a part of his forever family. Look at verse 10. It says, for it was fitting that he for whom by all things exist, and bringing the sons of glory, she make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell you your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praises. And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. So God, Jesus' purpose in living and dying was to make it possible for sons and daughters of disobedience to become sons and daughters of glory. This is only possible through Jesus Christ. This means that there is something that God desired. There is something that he was after. And it was only made possible only if Jesus came to suffer. Now, it says he had to be, he was made perfect. It doesn't mean that he was sinful and he had to become sinless or that he was lacking in something. It meant that there was something that he must accomplish. There was something that he had to endure that would then make it completely ready for the purpose to be seen. Jesus needed to live the life and obey God to become the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that's what Jesus did, that we see how God pursued us through His Son. And notice the result. Notice if you look at verses 10 through 13, notice all the family language. Sons, one source, children, brothers. 
that God pursued us through the suffering of His very Son so that He can make you a part of His forever family. That He pursues to make you one of His. But I love verse 11. Look at verse 11. I love this because I don't think we hear this enough. God pursues us in Christ and He paints this picture of Jesus being your big brother. And it is a big brother, it says in verse 11, with one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call you brothers. I think what happens is that we can go through our lives and often don't feel good enough. In fact, we probably never feel good enough. We make mistake after mistake, sin after sin, and we can make a mess of our lives. But when you are in Christ, here's the truth. When you are in Christ, when he is your brother, no matter what, he is not ashamed of it. No matter what you have done or you haven't done, Jesus is not ashamed of you. And here's why that's possible. He's proud to call you family. He's your proud big brother. But the difference is in how the original audience knew and pursued their identity, and how differently we do it today. When you meet someone, one of the first questions that you'll ask or be asked of you, it's what do you do? You see, our identity, we build it on all the things that we accomplish or the things that we do. And that is where we get, that is where we build our identity. So when we're doing well and we're successful and there's money in the bank, our identity feels great. But when we make a mess of things and things don't go our way, there's never enough money, then our identity begins to suffer. But in the original audience, you know where they got their identity? They get it from their family. And that's why you see so many genealogies in the scriptures, is their identity wasn't based on what they did. It was based on who they were. It came through their family. And so Jesus is proud of his brothers and, sim- brothers and sisters simply because you're his family, period. So no matter how big of a mess you can make your life, if you are in him, he is not ashamed of you. But there's more. Not only does God pursue us to the extent of his own son's life, not only does he pursue us to make us a part of his family, In verse 14, we see that God pursues us to destroy our greatest enemy. Verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children, notice the family language again, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death We're subject to a lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had made him like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So you and I have this enemy. And this enemy is always there. This enemy is Satan, and his weapon is death. 
but it's not a weapon that Satan came up with. It isn't one that he comes into the game with. God actually gives him the weapon. Satan's greatest weapon that he has, he says, is death. He's all around with this weapon, just waiting to use it. In fact, his greatest, I think Satan's greatest desire is to stop the gospel from being heard and believed by other people. So one day, Satan will be completely defeated. I mean, his days are numbered. But in the in-between, it says that he is active and prowling around like a lion, waiting to devour people. So I've often thought this week, what would a world where Satan had full reign look like? My first image was, you know, these movies are like the apocalypse where nothing seems to grow and everybody seems miserable. There isn't enough food to go around. Everybody's at each other's throats and it's the survival of the fittest. But then I got to thinking, I don't know if that's actually true. If Satan had full reign, it might be something more like this. It might be a place where houses are always clean. Yards are well kept. Jobs are completely satisfying. Bank accounts, never short. They're plentiful. No broken laws and no broken families. The education system is great. Everybody is learning and everybody has everything that they want. It would be a place where people saw no need for Jesus. But in the end, there he's waiting with death. The people living in that world, they would realize only at that moment, oh, it is too late. I think it'd be a world where people saw no need for Jesus. And so here's how it works. Satan only has power because of one thing. Without this, Satan would not have a weapon that he could use. And that power comes from sin. In fact, God set it up. God told us that if you sin, if you rebel against me, The wages, what you earn from your sin, is death. So Satan thinks that he can then take that and use it against you. In fact, the only way for Satan's power to be broken is for that obligation of sin to be dealt with, and that's what God does. God sends Jesus Christ to live the life of perfect obedience to the Father, and then willingly goes to the cross all the way to the grave to pay the obligation for that sin which was death. In fact, when Christ was raised back to life, that was the moment that Satan's power was broken. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, Christ blew a hole through death, and now he reaches to pull you through. And so the truth for Christians is this, is that Christians... You're not on a journey to death, but through death because of Jesus Christ. And it all hinges on one word in verse 17. It says, therefore, he made to be like his brothers. In every aspect, he had to take on humanity so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And there's the word, to make propitiation, or yours might say, atonement for sin. And this is why this word is so powerful and so important. In fact, you pick translations, 
In all the history, they will say there has been more debate over this word than any other word in the entire Bible of what to use. Because if you change this word, you change the entire meaning and effectiveness of the gospel. Because propitiation is a word that's got two major themes or two major sides to it. First of all, it's the thing about putting away or taking care of sin. It's the idea of forgiveness. And we all like this idea. We all like the idea of forgiveness that through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, that Jesus makes a way for sins to be forgiven. So the best picture I have is I was watching a show last week, and it was of this courtroom, and this family is there, and there's someone on trial, and you put it together. This person has done something, a horrible crime against this family. The verdict comes back as guilty, and at that moment, the family gets to address the offender and say anything they want. And that family gets up with tears flowing, and they look at that offender, and they offer that offender their forgiveness. And there wasn't a dry eye in that courtroom. But when it comes to sin, there is another side to the coin that has to be dealt with. It isn't just about forgiveness. If that's all there is, there is no gospel. So the second side, the other side of that is that when a sin is committed against a holy God, the punishment of that sin must be paid. Like the courtroom, man, forgiveness was great. It's hard to believe that that family could look at them and say, you know what, I forgive you. But at the end of that time where the family gets to talk, that offender is still going to be put in cuffs and carried away to serve out their sentence. He can be forgiven, but his sentence still had to be carried out. So propitiation is the idea that both sides are taken care of, that Christ not only makes a way for forgiveness, but also the penalty of sin is also satisfied. So it would be this way. It would be that same courtroom setting and that offender there, and the verdict of guilty comes crashing down. The family stands up and offers their complete forgiveness of that offender. But then one of those family members walks across the courtroom and allows them to put the cuffs on them, and they then serve that person's sentence. That is propitiation. But it took a unique person. Notice in verse 17, it says that Christ had to become like his brothers, like you and me, he had to become a man. He had to take on humanity, meaning Jesus could not die from heaven. He had to come and to become us so that he could live the life that we never could and then die the death that we deserved. So Christ pursues us to the extent of his own son's life to make you a part of his family to defeat your greatest enemy. And because of Jesus, The great news is that Satan can no longer threaten a Christian with death. I don't know if you ever lived that way, but man, there was a time in my life it seemed like I was afraid of that more than anything. But because of Jesus Christ, Christians are not on a journey to death, but through death. And the great truth for believers is that when you breathe your last breath here on earth, you actually become more alive than you've ever been. But there's one last thing God does when he pursues us. It's in verse 18. That God pursues us 
so that we can overcome sin. Look at verse 18. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. So when he takes on our humanity, he knew what it was like to be a helpless baby. He knew the pains of maturing, hunger, thirst. He knew what it was like to be despised. He knew rejection. He knew what it was like to be left out and people to misunderstand you. But he does that so that he can identify with you and then give you the power to stand up against sin. Because we can never do it on our own. But because God pursued us in Jesus Christ, he identifies with us so that we can stand against sin. So God pursues us at the very cost of his own son life. And he does it so that you can be a part of his forever family. And in that, he pursues you to give you the greatest defeat over the enemy and so that you in this life can stand up against sin. So I believe this, that some of you are here this morning and I believe that God is pursuing you to salvation. In fact, people in this church have been praying for You've never experienced the saving and forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. But God has been pursuing you. He's put people in your life so that you could know Him and that you could experience salvation and eternal life. And the question would be this, will you turn to Him this morning? But if you do know God's saving grace, I hope you know that God has never stopped pursuing you. That each and every day he's pursuing you so you know him better. He's pursuing you so you'll be able to trust him more and more every day. He's pursuing you so that you can have a life full of meaning and purpose. God will never stop pursuing you until you're face to face with him. But there's one last reason. There's, I believe, one last reason why God pursues us. If you were to take this section and you were to boil it all down, I think it says this one thing. That God pursues us so that when we have Christ, we know we have everything. That God pursues us so that when we have Christ and we have taken hold of Him, we know we have everything. So I begin asking you this morning about what in your life, what in your life would bring you greater joy or greater happiness? Or what does your life need to be better? Better job, children to obey, bigger, nicer house, dependable car, maybe to go back to school or get out of school, more money. Not to be single or to have a better marriage. The truth is, you can pray and seek God in this and He may very well give you what you're praying for, what you're wishing for. But if you do not have Christ, it will never be enough. It'll never be satisfying. The job will never be good enough. The children will never obey well enough. The house will never be big enough. The money will still run out. But if you have Christ, no matter what you might or might not get on that list, you can know that you have absolutely everything. So God pursues you so that when you have Christ, you know You have everything. 
thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.